Welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Howard Jacobson. And before we get to today's episode, a quick note that the WellStart Health Coach Academy is going to be opening up for another run starting in uh, November or December 2020. And the reason is we have one that just started now, but there's been a bunch of folks from Europe, UK, that type of time zone who have asked to participate. And the current one is only U.S. friendly. So we're starting another one that will be uh, Europe, UK friendly, Africa, um, even uh, a little farther into the Middle East. So if you're interested, go to wellstartcoach.com and you can read all about the program. And if you're interested, then you can register for an enrollment interview in which you and I will have a chat and see whether the program is a good fit for you. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get to today's episode. Jacobson from the Health Coaches Podcast, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the very good Dr. Glenn Livingston of Never Binge Again. Welcome, Glenn. In the house. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, you were the first guest that I wanted to have on this podcast. Um, we worked. We have worked together for a long time. Yeah. Um, you, I have taken your coach training course. I was on the board of one of your uh, coach certification academies. Um, we have both sort of done a parallel um, shuffle from internet marketing and business into the health space. And so, and you are one of the, the, the great coaches that I know, one of the great coaches in the health space. And by that, I mean that you have a reliable process for getting people results. I do. Um, and so I, 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 we track and measure them too. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's going overboard. That's really confident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk with you, um, about how you think about coaching and maybe let's, let's just start with your, with your background so that people can get just a, a sense of the sweep of, of what you bring to to health coaching. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that I I um I was married to a woman who traveled for business. And so I spent uh, and I never had kids and I never commuted. So I had a lot of time to work on my career. <laughs> and I I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I come from a family of 17 psychologists, uh, psychotherapists. And I um, set out to be a child and family psychologist. I wanted to work with couples and kids and individuals to do in-depth psychotherapy and, you know, t tell me about what ails you, tell me about what you want to accomplish, and let's see if we can figure out how to put it all together and make your life better. And when my, uh, when I was young, when my dad was at work, I would sneak down to his office and I would have my friends come into the office and lie down on the couch and tell me about their mother. Um, <laughs> I, I also bugged his office, believe it or not, when I was nine years old. I, I bugged his office and I was listening to all of his sessions. He didn't know. Um, so I was, I was kind of an outlaw when I was, I, no. I don't do that kind of thing anymore. That's totally unethical and illegal. But, um, but that, that's how much I wanted to be a psychologist. That's all I ever wanted to do. And, um, the thing though was that because there were 17 psychologists in my family, I, I wanted to figure out how to impact the masses on a bigger level. I, 
there's nothing wrong with being a country doctor and most of my family were country doctors and you know when you're a country doctor over the course of your career you affect about a thousand people at a very deep level mm-hmm. right and then they affect people and your work has ripples and um but for some reason i wanted to go wider i felt like psychology was so valuable that i wanted to i wanted to help millions of people using psychoeducation and i I was interested in figuring out how I could reach the masses on the radio and TV and with software and books, tapes. and So I married a marketer. Um, and before I knew it, she had introduced me. She was very successful. She was working with mostly Fortune 100 companies um, who were supposedly doing healthy things and were not really doing healthy things. <laughs> and I was, I was on the wrong side of the war for a while, but I spent um, – I spent – uh, probably about 15 years having a dual career consulting. Oh. consulting well, I, for- think, I think of you as a secret agent infiltrating their ranks to, to come back with intel that helps the rest of us. Yeah. Okay, that, that's much better. That makes me feel like I didn't waste my life. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. It's actually true. Um, I mean, so long story short, what happened was I would typically see so, so I had this dual career. I was doing um, business. I was doing advertising consulting for a big business. And uh, I was simultaneously having a child and family practice. And usually the couple would be referred to me because of an affair. There's something about the way that I positioned the ad. I didn't do it on purpose. But I saw hundreds of people per year right after they had an affair. And I got pretty good at – most of them wanted to stay together and I got pretty good at, well, actually very good at helping them stay together. But once they were staying together, um, it turned out that their kids were kind of messed up from everything that had gone on and things that had kind of led to the affair. And, and so I started working with their kids. Um, and at some point they would say, hey, this guy took the thorn out of my paw. What else can he do? And now I didn't have a diagnosis anymore to put on the insurance form. And I didn't like having to make up diagnoses to put on insurance forms. And so I said, well, I can take you into my coaching practice if you want me to. Um, and that just means we set up a goal and we work on the goal and we try to achieve the goal. We look at what's interfering with the goal. And we're not going to delve so much, so much into what's sick or wrong or unhealthy about you that has to be quote unquote treated. We're going to um, facilitate your progress towards the goal um, and you're going to choose it and I'm not going to be so much as a doc of a doctor as a thinking partner and, and so I saw a lot of coaching people and- so so I'm curious about that did you feel like there was something about the way you had been doing psychology or the way you were taught psychology that was somehow suboptimal or holding you back like what was the transition into coaching from psychotherapy well it's probably more that I was achievement oriented that there was anything wrong with it. I, I was trained as a modern psychoanalyst and modern psychoanalysts are trained to help people resolve the fragmenting forces of the mind. So we look very carefully at people's self-destructive behavior and we understand that as aggression turned towards the self and we resolve it by facilitating a transference relationship where people eventually have that transference towards you, that aggression towards you. And it was very effective. 
but it wasn't a very happy job. Hmm. Um, because to really resolve people's deepest problems, I would have to position myself in a way that it was okay for the patient to hate me. And I didn't like getting up to 65 patients a week that didn't like me so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they would tell you that they love me because you, you balance the transference out and you keep a relationship so that they want to keep working at it. And if they looked at what happened in their lives as a result of the work, it was phenomenal. Um, but I wasn't happy. I, I mean, I worked with a lot of suicidal people and I was losing a lot of sleep. I never lost anybody, but I, I was really not happy doing that. Um, and I think that my mission was always to, um, you know, I, I like to develop systems. I like to facilitate growth as quickly as I can. I think there are, there are problems that can be resolved a lot quicker if you're not hyper-focused on character development. If you're just focused on resolving the problem, you can do that a lot quicker and easier and less expensively for the client. And I, because I had all this marketing experience, because I spent all these years doing, you know, research and learning protocols and uh, learning how to model behavior in computer systems, I, I knew that there would be a way that I could affect the masses. And so I, I just always, I mean, the best way I could put it is when I was four years old, my, my dad was on the radio and my mom calls me into the kitchen and she says, honey, come here. Daddy's on the radio. And I say, why is daddy on the radio? And she says, because he's a psychologist. And I said, well, what's a psychologist? She says, well, he makes people happy when they're sad. And I said, I want to do that. And I said, why is that on the radio? And she says, well, because he wants to make more people happy when they're sad. And I said, I want to do that. (laughs) And that's been my life's mission. Like, how many people can I make happy when they're sad? It's not anywhere near that simple. I also happen to have been a really serious binge eater. And I almost Mm. killed myself with it for many years, especially in my 30s. And I saw it in a yeah, sorry. I, I just I'm I'm still like worrying this idea about the transition from like the difference between therapy and coaching. So mm-hmm. let's like take your metaphor of the thorn in the paw. Like if mm-hmm. you you remove the like if I wanted to coach someone, you know, to run a race, which is like a positive thing, you know, achievement oriented. Yeah. Um, and they had a thorn in their paw. I could do all the motivation and all the planning and all the sort of positive things of coaching, but until the, the thorn comes out, they're not going to change, right? But part of what you teach uh, in the Never Binge Again is that you don't have to solve your relationship with your mother in order to stop binging. So, what, so how, do you, how do you think about that balance of there are deficits that have been caused by, you know, adverse childhood events or other life events that may be thorns in the paw, that may be wounds, but as coaches, we don't necess- we don't go there. The metaphor I would use is a fire in a fireplace. If if you have a roaring fire in a well contained, well constructed fireplace, it becomes the center of hearth and home. And as long as the fireplace is safely contained, you can spend time looking at the fire. Think of the fire as the emotion. They're, they're raging emotions. Okay. Um, if there's a hole in the fireplace, then even one ash can get out and burn down the house. And my job as a coach is to construct the fireplace and sever the link between the emotional upsets and the overeating episodes. 
as a coach, I am looking to make it possible for the client to live in a safe house and get to think about what they want to think about and focus on what they want to focus on because I have severed the link that made the emotions dangerous. If they want to talk to me about the emotions later on, that's cool. If it gets into more in-depth about where it came from and what's wrong with me and why do I have these things, then I have to transition them to psychotherapy or send them to a therapist. But my job as a coach is really to construct the fireplace so that they stop up for me. I'm a, I'm a binge and overeating coach. So I got to stop the emotions from causing the overeating. And then what they do with the emotions is up to them. Mm -hmm. So you developed this protocol. And I, you know, I remember when you first sent me the first draft of this book, I had no idea you were working on binge eating, right? Yeah. We, we were just marketing buddies back then. And I read the book and I was I was really struck by how logical it was and like almost by reading this book, I was like, oh, I could see how to coach people. Like I started <laughs> coaching people using your methodology before I was halfway done with the book. I hear that a lot. Um, but you developed it by being a binge eater, right? By by working through like how, how did how, like what was that process of, of taking your N as one, solving it and then generalizing? <laughs> I wish I could say it was as methodical as I would like it to be as a doctor. Um, I was a really bad effing binge eater. I mean, like, if you've passed by a delicatessen in Syosset, New York, and they were out of things, it's probably because I was there before. If you if, if you couldn't find Pop-Tarts or pizza or anything in Syosset, it was probably because I was there before you. Um, I was really that bad. I was really par that bad. partial to foods that start with P. Absolutely. Yes. That's, that's all I eat. <laughs> Pineapples, bees, pasta. <laughs> um, and it, it made me miserable, not just because I was fat. I, I mean, I wore it pretty well. I'm six, four, um, kind of muscular. I, uh, but I, you know, probably I was about 80 pounds heavier. I stopped weighing myself. Probably was about 80 pounds heavier at, at my worst. And I was miserable. I, I couldn't stop thinking about food was the worst part. And so I couldn't be – If you, when you really get to know about coaching or psychology, it's not really about solving the jigsaw of people's lives and showing them what they have to fix and where this piece goes or where that piece goes. It's about getting them to love you and trust you enough that they're willing to see that in the first place and they're willing to think new thoughts and try new things. And to do that, you have to lend them your soul. And the more serious a problem they're working with, the more they have to trust you the more you have to lend them your soul. And I couldn't do it. I, I mean, I I didn't lose anybody with all the suicidal people I work with and, and I have like 250 couples that I work with, only two ever got divorced. I, I was good anyway, um, but it was really, really, really hard. I just, you know, I'd be sitting with a suicidal client and I'd be thinking, when can I go get a whole pizza? Like, I, it, I just wasn't mm. totally... Pre and so I'd spent about... 30 years trying to love myself then. You know, when, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I came from this family of psychologists and I, I thought, I must be binging because I have this hole in my heart. And if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I would stop filling the hole in my stomach. But at one point, there are a whole bunch of things that came together that made me think that was the wrong paradigm, that you couldn't really love yourself then. First of all, when I looked at the neurology of it, the reptilian brain, which is the seat of 
feast and famine, we see that the flight or fight response are very primitive, um, are, are very primitive emergency responses that say is just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. I mean, we make a joke about that, but it's, it's really a survival drive. That survival drive doesn't know love. That comes from a time in a revolution when, when the organism looked at something in the, in the environment, it said, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? Eat miracle. So imagine this is the, the lizard brain, right? <laughs> well, on, on top of that, there's the mammalian brain, uh, in the limbic system and, and the, uh, a neurologist would take me to task on this because I'm oversimplifying it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but I, I understand rock, paper, scissors. So I'm getting, I'm getting this so far. <laughs> rock, paper, scissors, dude. So, so, uh, the mammalian brain says before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is it going to have on your tribe and those you love and the, you know, the other organisms that are important to you? Um, and then there's the neocortex on top of that that says, wait a minute. Before you eat meat or kill that thing, we need to know not only what impact it's going to have on your tribe and those you love, but what about your long-term plans? What about the contribution you're trying to make to society? What about the kind of person that you want to be in the world? What about um, what about spirituality and art and music and you know your participation in society and and all of that? Well, it sure, sure is crowded in there. <laughs> it's, it's a wonder I it's a wonder I can get anything done. You have no idea. So, so, so here I am spending 30 years trying to love myself thin when the part of the brain that is really responsible for food addiction doesn't know love. And I said, that's interesting. There's something wrong there. Um, then I looked at, you know, I was consulting for really big food companies and I said, well, they're engineering all of this hyper palatable food like stuff, like, uh, Concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And it's, it's all engineered to hit our bliss point in our primitive brains without giving us the nutrition to feel satisfied. Right. And, and so we want more and more and more. And I said, that has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough when I was one year old or that I'm in a bad marriage or that I'm, you know, depressed or lonely. That has nothing to do with it. That's, you know, this industry aligned against me where every time I look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container. There's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the back. Um, I said, so those are two extraordinary forces. Then I looked at the addiction treatment industry, which was telling people that they can't stop no matter um, – they can't quit no matter how hard they try. All they can do is abstain one day at a time. But the evidence didn't bear that out. And I said, wait a minute. So there are these three extraordinary forces aligned against us. And I'm walking around feeling ashamed like there's something wrong with me. I'm thinking that I've got a hole in my heart. I'm thinking that I'm a sick and diseased human being, and that's why I'm doing this. But the truth is there are a lot of profit motives out there that are spending billions of dollars to get me to eat like this. It's all targeted at this very primitive part of my anatomy. Um, and... And, and then I'm, I'm just getting the wrong messages everywhere, and so is everybody else. So I was not going to publish it at this point. I said, uh, and it's kind of embarrassing for me. Your audience probably knows what I did, but um, it's kind of embarrassing for me as a sophisticated psychologist that this is how I got better. But I decided to use a very crude and primitive um, metaphor, which was inspired by Jack Trempey's Rational Recovery, 
he talks about the two separate pieces of the brain. And I decided that I was going to draw very bright lines that separated constructive versus destructive behavior. So I would know when there were very clear thoughts that suggested I do something destructive with food. So, for example, one of the first rules was I will never eat chocolate on a, on a weekday again. I will only ever have chocolate Saturday and Sunday. That way I knew – this is the part that um, is embarrassing – I knew that if I heard a little voice in my head that said, you worked out hard enough today even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain weight if you have a little bit of chocolate – Go ahead, you can get started tomorrow. I knew that that was not me. That was not my constructive self. That was a manifestation of my reptilian brain, and I decided to call it my inner pig. I wasn't a vegan back then. <laughs> I, was, um, I wasn't even Whole Foods plant-based back then. Um, I decided it was my inner pig, and I would say, my pig is squealing for slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a Wednesday. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I, um, as crude and primitive as that sounds, that's what got me better slowly but surely. Not as a miracle. The miracle was that I no longer felt hopeless. It would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right decision if I wanted to, at least to remember who I was. And sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. Mm-hmm. But but I no longer felt hopeless. I no longer felt powerless. Experimented with a whole bunch of rules. And um, you know, here I am today. Yeah. I got – So, yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I we, we haven't really talked about this. I'm very curious about this realization that you had that by giving love to – you know, by expressing self-love and however, I don't even sure how, what that looks like, whether it's, you know, just affirmations or like if, if the hole in your heart was, you know, in, in the old paradigm was causing you to overeat, how, how are we, how are we supposed to fill that according to that paradigm? Well, you're, you're supposed to heal your wounded inner, inner child. You're supposed to love and accept your desire for more food than you need as a manifestation of the anxiety and depression that you're feeling because you, you know, weren't loved enough and because you've had bad life circumstances and because all these emotions were quote unquote triggering you, right? Um, that's what you're supposed to do. But what I realized at that point was that it wasn't, it, I mean, it just wasn't working. It just wasn't nurturing me. I'm a very compassionate person and if you need a hug, I got a hug for you. I mean, you know me, Harry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in depth psychotherapy and I spent, I think I have a very rich inner life because I spent a lifetime soul searching and reflecting, but it didn't help me with my food. Um, so I realized that I have to stop trying to nurture my inner wounded child and I have to think of this like I think of urges generated by other bodily organs. And if you think about it, it's not without parallel, right? Because our bladders generate very powerful urges. Um, you know, I, I'm in the middle of a video interview, and if I had to pee, I don't. But if I had to pee very badly right now, I probably would not excuse myself. I would tell my bladder that I hear you. Um, I will attend to the need at some point, but you're going to have to wait because I have other responsibilities in the world right now. I'm in charge. You're not, right? Mm-hmm. Or if I see a really attractive woman on the street, I don't run up to her and kiss her. You know, you have to approach women in a very particular way in our society, and um, I'm not even really that good at doing that in 
in in a, in a good way. So, <laughs> which is why I'm still single, right? Um, I'm, I'm kind of shy, but but you know what I mean. It, it's I don't let my testicles dictate how I behave. I don't let my bladder dictate how I behave, and so I'm not going to let my lizard brain, my inner pig, dictate how I behave with uh, with food either. It's more of an alpha wolf approach, and the alpha wolf in a tribe, when it's challenged for leadership, doesn't say, "Oh my goodness, someone needs a hug." <laughs> you know, come, come here, Bubby. Let me let me let me give you a hug. The alpha wolf growls and snarls and says, "Get back in line, or I'll kill you." Right? Uh-huh. That's that's the relationship between an alpha wolf and a challenger. And I said, well, what if that's the relationship I have to adopt? So it's different than nurturing an unwounded child. What, what happens, though, as a practical matter, and this is why I have uh, – are you still there? Yep. I lost the video. Oh. Uh, oh, there you go. As a practical matter, what happens when people adopt this kind of disciplined approach – and they integrate more discipline in their life is they feel like a master of their own fate. Their self-esteem goes up. They have more compassion for the emotions that were getting them in trouble all these years. And then if they want to go to therapy and then if they want to work through all those emotions, the emotions are right there and they're safe. They're safe to deal with. Um, Otherwise, therapists are always finding that when the client gets more emotional, then they report they're binging more, and you know, because because there's no fireplace, there's no really good fireplace in place to to stop the fire. So, gotcha. So, when you started coaching other people, um, what did you what did you discover um, that allowed you to get better? Because I know you're you're a you know test and evaluate kind of guy. So what what was what was your process of discovering how to coach others? Well, I was initially frightened it would be, it would threaten my own recovery. So I didn't want to, I, I'd never worked with eating disordered clients. I always referred them to nutritionists and people that specialize in that with, with very rare exception because I had my own problem. Um, and there were years when I was in Overeaters Anonymous and I was doing okay for a while until I don't really believe in that program anymore. Um, so the question is, what was the process? I, I was afraid of it for a little while. Um, and then the book was getting so popular. You, you actually helped introduce me to the market. You were the very first podcast that interview that I did. This was before the book was even published. Yeah, I, I knew yeah. you before you were big. You did. I mean, you you've did. always been six foot four, but. Uh... Thanks. No, I, I really appreciate that. And we've been buddies the whole time. We were buddies before then. Um, so at first I was frightened of it, and then I realized that it was actually better for me. So for about a year, I was trying not to coach people um, while the book was getting a little bigger, and, and then the book really took off. It's got almost a million readers now. Mm-hmm. And remind um, us of the name of the book. Never Binge Again. Very good. And you can get a free copy at neverbingeagain.com. Um, so... As the book took off and people were asking for coaching, I couldn't really ignore it. And so I started to do it. And I, I'm a very methodical thinker, and I realized I kept a journal for eight years. So I understood the various squeals that I told myself. What surprised me as I started coaching people was that it seemed like everybody else was saying the same thing to themselves. You know, you can start tomorrow. Um, yeah. You know, you, 
you've failed so many times before. There's no point in trying to do this now. You might as well just binge. Yippee, let's go get some. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, almost like there's a taxonomy of dysfunctional thinking mm-hmm. that can get applied to, um, to binge eating. And that was exciting to me, both because I realized that I wasn't alone, because I thought I was alone in my head, and I really thought I was sick. And I, I realized it was just some this thing in my head that was generating these urges and then justifications for it, and that there were only about you know thirty or forty different possible justifications. Um, so the other thing that I realized was that by being in the position where I could objectively evaluate what people's rules were and what was difficult about sticking to them for them, um, I was able to more clearly see what was healthy and what wasn't. Because when someone was talking to me about should they give up eating pretzels, should they create a conditional rule where they only have them you know, on Sundays or at Major League Baseball parks, um, should they try to eat as much as they want and see if they get tired of it. The, the decision that we made together wouldn't affect my stomach. I wouldn't get the gratification from eating the pretzels and I wouldn't feel the deprivation from not having the pretzels. I wouldn't get the uh, weight loss from, you know, following a more constructive plan and I wouldn't get the weight gain from following a more destructive plan. It became very objective and you know, I'm a smart guy. I'm, I'm not confident about a lot of things. I was never totally confident in my looks. I was never totally confident with women. But I'm confident that I'm smart. And when I had all that data available to me, I could really see how to um, disempower all of those illogical squeals. And it became clear to me that there was always a half-truth and a bigger lie in every justification for eating. Um like you could just start tomorrow. Well, well, you know, you can't just start tomorrow. It's not just as easy because by the principles of neuroplasticity, if you, if you indulge a craving today, the association between that craving and the indulgence is going to be stronger. Um, you're, you're going to create more connections. You're going to be strengthening the addiction. You're digging a big, bigger hole. And if you're in a hole, you should stop, stop digging. Right. And that's, I think that's going to be a, a whole podcast conversation just about what I think are the harms of people taking the trans theoretical model at face value of talking about, oh, so there's a pre-contemplation phase, mm-hmm. right? And using that to allow people to not start till next week. Right. Like there's always something you can do right now. Yes. And, and pre-contemplation is often just an excuse to reinforce the, the the neuroplasticity of delay and procrastination. So just that that is very profound and brilliant. And for the benefit of people who don't really know what pre-contemplation is, could you say what yeah. it is? Well, so this is the um, the trans theoretical model was ba- is basically stages of change, readiness for change. And so the idea was if you're trying to get someone to change and they haven't really thought about it yet and you're, you know, or let's say, you know, in a simple case, you're trying to get them to buy something, but they don't realize they have a need. There's a mismatch in the communication. So clearly there's some value there. Uh-huh. But but when they talk about like, like I've never found the trans theoretical model, this idea of figure out what stage the person is in and coach them based on that. I've never found it helpful 
as a coach because what what I'm looking for is what are you ready what are you willing to do right now? And it doesn't have to be the whole thing. It doesn't have to be I'm going to cut cheese out of my diet or I'm going to start running marathons. Right. But when someone what, comes one to, simple thing, what are you willing to do? Yeah. So there's yeah. no like the idea of pre contemplation assumes large chunks that you ha you have to you know get ready to climb into as opposed to you can make the slope you know you can do algebra and make the slope virtually you know completely smooth so you're uh you know you're taking action you're practicing being responsible to this moment and the pre contemplative mode suggests that people have to get ready to get ready yeah um and what it overlooks from the coaching perspective is that the fact that the client contacted you and wanted to have a session. Um, now there, you know, there are all types of resistances they will have, and I believe in being intrigued and not bulldozing those walls. But by the same token, there is a part of them that's ready right now. And the only moment that you can be healthy is now, because it's always now. So you always want to use the present moment to be healthy. So you want to capture the client's momentum. Your, your job is to figure out um, not to be kind of a grandma and say, well, you're not quite ready yet. And why don't you, you know, why don't you kill yourself with food for a little longer? And then when you're in enough pain, yeah. <laughs> you know, your job is to see this as a sacred moment that the client is being vulnerable to you with and is trusting you to find a go forward solution. Okay. And, and it's just got to be one simple thing. I tell people, are you, are you willing to put your fork down between bites? Are you willing to, you know, I always talk about this truck driver that um, only ate fast food and he had an awful lot of weight to lose. And he said he's – this was not my client. It was someone I, I knew his client. And he said, well, you know, I'm not going to give up fast food. I like it too much when I'm driving around. And so the guy was supervising said, well, what are you willing to do? And he said, well, I'll never go back for seconds. And the guy lost 150 pounds starting with that one simple rule. Um, and so I always – I always tell people the pig tries to set the bar too high. Most people that are trying to lose weight or make health changes, they do set the bar too high. It's like, I'm going to go on my diet and I'm going to be a new person and everything is going to be better tomorrow when I want to get myself up to that. And I'll, I'll say, well, look, you got to go to, you know, first grade before you go to, go to college. What's one simple thing you'd be willing to do? And, Almost without fail, when I can have that conversation with people and they'll genuinely entertain it, we start to turn the ship around and then momentum builds. And then they say, I might like to do something else. So, yeah, I, I don't believe in this getting ready to get ready kind of thing. I think that if someone calls me that we're going to make a change right away. Right. So there's yeah. a lot more I want to talk to you about. So I'm thinking you're going to be a recurring guest if I can stay on your good side. Um, but I want to I want to end with a question just about coaching process. Because, you know, uh -huh. you and I have worked with lots of coaches. We've trained coaches. We've been trained as coaches. And, like, one of my pet peeves about coach training is that it gives people tons of tools but no process. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could, res you know, respond to that. Um, well, I, I have a very structured six-step process that has to do with um, – intervening to respect people's autonomy and have them take responsibility for the food plan that they want to follow. You know, I don't offer them a diet. I let them figure it out themselves, but I'm, 
I'm very directive and um, and it's, it's a very active questioning process to get them get them there. Um, and then you know that it involves looking at why they want to do that and amping up their motivation. What's going to happen if they don't do it? Um, and then we look at all of the squeals, all the resistance to doing it, everything the pig says that suggests that they can't or won't or shouldn't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, then we, we dispute and disempower those squeals, and then we have a process for bringing them to 100% confidence. And, you know, there's an endpoint. There's a very clear endpoint, and the, the coach knows exactly how to move from step to step to step. And they they know when they've done their job with the client and you know what's next. Yeah, and and you're not giving people a ton of stuff as as coaches when you train coaches, right? There's no what we call like the thud factor, like the giant three ring binder. Like this is a like you know it's definitely like a lifetime to master. And you're giving people a really simple limited process. Which is very different from like as a coach, I just learned the smorgasbord. Like, hey, here's a really cool technique to try sometime. Hey, have them imagine their future self giving an interview. Like all like all this stuff, and it's all useful in its place, but good. But I was never taught when to use it. And what I love about your process is that it's very clear what happens next at every stage. You know, it's it's hard to my my program focus exhaust focuses exhaustively on those. Uh, that six-step process, and then we teach people how to market it. Um, it's hard because people want the tools and te- they want it, they want that smorgasbord of tools and techniques. And oh, this is so cool! That's so cool! It's, it's almost like coaching porn, right? <laughs> it, it's it, it's it's um it's very alluring on the front end, but it at, at the end you're all alone in your room, not being successful with it. Yeah, a, I remember getting. Yeah. I was so excited. I got a. Um... A CD-ROM from one coaching organization. This was around like 2002, 2003. And it had like 150 different exercises you could do. And it had 75 assessments. And I felt like, oh, now I've got the tools. Like, like it felt like I was in an armory. Like I was just going to strap on all my Rambo stuff and, and conquer the world. And it just made me worse. It's not the tools that make you better. Like I would rather master one thing. Then you know it's almost like being a jack of all trades. There's an uh, intellectual and an emotional muscle that has to develop when you work with clients. And mo- most people put off working with clients. They have the hardest time getting people to do. You know, like we we developed a presentation that works. You go to gyms, you get gym owners to let you give the presentation. They get more people to come into the gym. They can sell more, and you get to sell their clients. It's a win-win all around. We developed it. We tested it. We made it made it better. And it works and I have the hardest time getting people to do it because people get frightened and they're, they're more involved with the pornography of all those techniques than really facing the like emotional and, and intellectual development that they have to face by practicing with real clients and, um, applying one really effective tool over and over and over again. And, um, you know, this is one of the things I actually learned in marketing. There, there are a million different things you can do to market your business. You know, you could do, uh, you could do Instagram and Facebook. You could do paid advertising. You could do email. You could do direct mail. You could do speaking. Uh, and as a consequence, there are all of these people who have courses to teach you all of those different things, right? But 
if you haven't mastered any of them, then what's the point of learning the others? So, you know, this is kind of like, you know, are there 25 different martial arts that you could study? Of course, but I can teach you karate and I'm a real master at it. And, um, once you come in and I'll teach you how to do that. And then you decide after, you know, a couple of years of really becoming a master, whether you want to add others to your armamentarium. It's a muscle. It's, it's a muscle that develops and it's more experiential than intellectual. Yeah. The intellectual part of what I teach is not that hard. Um, the experiential part, because you, you have to learn to be the shining candle in a forest of darkness and despair. You, you remember the um, Never Ender story when the, the horse sunk into the, the swamp of despair? It, no. Well, oh, okay. People who are binge eating are very despairing. They feel like all is lost. And that feeling will overtake you at first. You, you'll, you'll not know what to do. You'll, and you have to be willing to hold the candle no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that's a muscle. You have to face your own demons to do that. Yeah. And well, you have, so, to, you have to face your own demons because all ever, other people's, me, you know, inner messes are going to vibrate with all of your inner messes. So if you don't have good fireplaces, they're going to start burning out of control. And also, if you don't have if you don't have a method that you've practiced, it's really hard to, with integrity, hold out this candle because you're like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Right. You need to do it again and again and again and practice on yourself too to feel like in yourselves, I have something useful to offer. Got to sell yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. I would just look at the time. I realize I have another minute or two to. All right. Well, I would definitely come back and do it again. Good, good. So I, I wrote down like seven more conversations we're going to have. So okay. um, just okay. tell us where people can find you and for and, and for people who are coaching, either professional coaches or in lifestyle medicine and some sort of medical professional or uh, allied health professional who might want to learn more about Never Binge Again. Take take it away. Well, what I think everybody should do is start with the book itself at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. And there are a couple of things you get besides the book. You get the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format for free. You will also get a set of recorded coaching sessions so you can hear this in process and you can see how this method takes people from feeling hopeless and discouraged and powerless to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and excited in just 45 minutes. Um, so I think that's probably the most important thing you could do. Re- read the book and listen to some of those sessions. There are a whole bunch of other goodies that you get when you do that. Um, that will lead you towards on that site. If you look at the products and services section, you'll find our books and you'll find our coach training programs and everything like that. And you're, um, you're welcome to inquire about that if you really uh, want to. Um, but I think that there's no point to me talking to me about training you as a coach if you don't really know what the method is and you haven't really heard about how we do it. So I'd, I'd rather actually not take you into the program until you've done that. So neverbingeagain.com, big red button. All right, Glenn Livingston, thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time to to share these insights with uh, folks today. Howie, it was great. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Okay, talk to you later.
All right. Hope you found that valuable. Again, if you'd like to participate in the upcoming WellStart Health Coach training, you don't actually have to be in Europe. You just have to be able to make a 10 or 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern time call. So if you are not working during the day, or you can grab an hour and a half um, on Wednesdays between 10 and noon. Then this is for you as well. Again, it's wellstartcoach.com. Read all about it. Got questions? Let me know. And I look forward to seeing you there if you're interested. Okay.